0: Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. It's another big week in the land of common sense, as we try to unpick... The complicated world of coronavirus, of illegal immigration, of working from home, and why we're already hearing there could be a problem reopening schools next week don't let it happen people we've had another weekend of mixed messages confused instructions and contradictory behavior from the powers that be while one police force charged onto a child's birthday party garden to issue fixed penalty fines another was busy taking the knee and posing with a group of wealthy individuals and their supercars there have been more illegal raves more quarantine orders more dire warnings about spikes of virus infection and yet nothing really seems to be changing Do you feel any different now than you did last week or the week before that? Do you feel as if you're in any more danger? We've had a massive debate over the weekend on Twitter about working from home after Richard Tice uh, talked to us last Friday and basically said that he believed it was time to put a tax on those people working from home. So far, 300,000 people have watched the little clip. Uh, Loads and loads of people have watched it on YouTube as well. And yet... Nobody can seem to agree on what to do. Today, we will be tackling the subject we started talking about last week. Why on earth are we treating COVID-19 as we did back in March? Why are we stuck in a coronavirus time warp? And why are we so determined to go back to the future? Why are people who returned from Portugal on Friday having to stay home for 14 days when those who came back a day later don't? It's strange, isn't it? Why is Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty now warning that children must go back to school when he was the one recommending that schools should be shut in the first place? It's also inconsistent, so we will be seeking an answer from consultant Dr. Waqar Rashid, a man who's just written a piece for The Spectator, uh, in which he basically says, why are we treating COVID-19 as if we know no more about it than we did back Four months ago, 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we're joined by Mail on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens, who will tell us the results of his questioning of the Department of Health on the efficacy of quarantining. Is it working? How many people have reported being sick? And given the lowest rates of infection ever, I think I know what the answer is likely to be. And we'll be asking Martin Daubly this question. Why on earth should we be ashamed of land of hope and glory and rural Britannia? Two stirring pieces of music that the BBC now wants to ban from last night of the proms. 344-499-1000. And we'll be finding out why the latest thing to upset the snowflakes is, wait for it, a full stop. Beggars belief, doesn't it? You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, moving swiftly on, I know that lots of you are already calling. Many of you want to have conversations with us because this is what we do. We like to hear from you uh, on the sounds and the voices that you're, t- you're telling us about, the things that you're hearing, the things that you're seeing, the things that you are being told, because, of course, uh, we are now in the grip of what can only be described as coronaphobia. Let us talk to Dr. Waqib Rashid, consultant neurologist, uh, MS specialist. He's written a piece just this week for The the Spectator, I should say, about why on earth we are treating COVID as if we don't know much more about it than we did uh, when we first came across it back in March. Dr. Waqib, a very good morning to you. Welcome to the show.
1: Uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, it's uh, Waka, R- Rashid, sorry. It's oh, it's, it's it. Waka,
0: my apologies. Sorry. Waka, got... Rashid, thank you. Sorry, my apologies. Listen, um, okay. I loved your piece of The Spectator. I think it's very prescient. I think it's very timely. Uh, tell us why you think we are stuck in a time warp. OK,
1: um, so I, I think... Uh, this, just to put some context, it's a hugely complex situation yeah. that we're in, and... Uh, it, dealing with things we've never dealt with before. I think a lot of the initial information we had was through the WHO on the Chinese experience going back, you know, January, February and so on. And so we had this uh, template, if you like, of uh, lockdown and uh, self-isolation and, and so on as being, if you like, the done thing at that time uh, as the, the the epidemic was coming to Europe. I think certain very Sensible things, for terms of hand washing, uh, hygiene, uh, and and also, if you look at what Sage were were recommending initially, and, and discussing in their initial discussions going back to late February March, was looking at slowly building things up in terms of uh, protection of people who are more vulnerable. Um, but then I think they were still going off. Um, it seemed to me, anyway, um, a, a a knowledge on 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 it being a sort of a, an infectious flu like virus yeah and um i think what has turned out over the coming months has been slightly different to that and uh, but we're still kind of in a situation where we're recommending lockdowns, so be local now rather than complete as being a solution and if you look around the world um and even in this country it's not clear whether that's actually been effective No, that's right. And that's why I'm slightly surprised
0: that we are moving in the way that we are, because we have been told, and I've said this many times, uh, that we are guided by the science. But the science, let's face it, has been moving around all over the place. And we've already heard last week uh, that now it looks as though perhaps people were being uh, diagnosed as having died of COVID uh, and having been even admitted to hospital because of COVID, uh, when that wasn't actually the case. So we don't even know if the numbers that we were told are true, are actually true.
1: Yeah, I I think... You know, this has been a huge challenge uh, for the several agencies involved and it's been a huge challenge for them. I think perhaps what this has also revealed is, if you like, um, across several agencies, there hasn't been, um, if you like, the the, the, the specialized knowledge, medical specialized knowledge. And there's been mistakes that are made, I think in good faith, you know, they've tried to deal with a complex situation. Um, And um, I think there have been knowledge gaps. And uh, I think also statistics have been, um, there's been this inconsistency. And then when you change something, it it becomes very, very confusing. But I don't think we've been alone in that in this country. I think this is something which actually um, seems to be the case in several countries. So... Uh, and I, 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 I guess you could say it's be, perhaps because there has been a scientific and medical gap in several agencies uh, and and government, uh, which has made them uh, perhaps make these uh, these errors, or uh, and then it comes to be uh, found out in subsequent time. It just looks it look, doesn't look reassuring in that sense, and uh, so again, it's it's a learning process that has gone on in, 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 over the last few months. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm like you, uh,
0: Wakar. I'm not interested particularly in punishing um, decisions that were made before, because they may have been made with information which was incorrect. However, I think knowing what we now know, and your piece illustrates this very well, you don't really, you know, want to have that back to the future experience where you go, let's go back to 2020 sometime in the future, uh, when it was all terribly badly run. I mean, surely now... Somebody needs to take a grip of the, the, the science and take a grip of what we know and the knowledge base that we have. Look around the world and see what they're doing and start to behave in a way which looks like you're trying um, to come out of this crisis rather than prolong it.
1: Yes, I, I think what is clear and I think perhaps uh, hasn't been emphasised enough is that there are harmful effects for locking down yeah. on people. And uh, a temporary lockdown uh, to try and, you know, whether it was justified or not, but there was certainly a good argument for uh, to protect the NHS from capacity issues, you know, in, on a short term basis was sensible. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't know the numbers. We saw a massive increase in infections uh, in late March, uh, uh, come to early in mid-April, but obviously that has changed So time and um, uh, so there's no capacity issue at the moment now you know time will tell but there's no capacity issue at the moment in the NHS so simply going back to lockdowns again uh, for positive cases without completely understanding what the effectivity or the seriousness of that doesn't to me uh, uh, seem to have used the knowledge that we've learned about this uh, virus over the last few months and um, I I think so that there needs to be a reflection in my opinion as to what are we seeing now what's similar to what we saw with with COVID in February and March and what's different Because there are differences to what we're seeing currently and taking you know what we think has worked best in, in February March and I think you know the the improvement in terms of Hand washing, uh, in particular, uh, and uh, another sort of simple uh, techniques of uh, of prevention. But what, but looking at the the whether really it is justified on what we're seeing now to to lock down absolutely everybody in the population, particularly because of the the negative health effects, uh, and and also I think um, the, the the need to explain why we're doing these things, because I think quite rightly. Uh, Many people will wonder, well, why are we going through this again? But, um, you know, the the serious infections and and deaths appear, uh, thankfully, to be under control.
0: Yes. And there certainly seems to be, uh, Waikara, a school of thought uh, in which uh, the virus has certainly thinned out, if you like, uh, and is less dangerous in and of itself to individuals who are contracting it. And there are certainly no hospital admissions uh, on the rise, which would tend to suggest that if the infections are on the rise, they're not terribly bad infections.
1: Yeah, I mean that that's been uh, that's been obviously a very um, uh, very good news, really. Uh, it obviously, now over the last few months, there's been a consistent fall in people admitted to hospital, uh, new admissions, and 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 thankfully also deaths mm. uh, from from COVID. And that's been very very good news. And you know there's several potential reasons for that uh, uh, you know there's a lot of theories abounding about this but I, i've not seen there being uh, if you like um a, a proper reflection on this at, at um uh, at, at official level as to why this is the case so, and it's, it's important that we need that because uh, that's the way we learn and so you know the effort on those things that do appear to be working um uh, so that we improve um there's no doubt that um, uh, I think some of the measures will will have some relevance there and you can analyse the data um, in a much more detailed way um, than I'm able to, but to to pick out what things, uh, the measures that were done were more successful than other things and then you put your, your uh, measures into those things that were more effective and the other things which were less effective you don't need to go back to. Um, there's other natural factors which I think are important as well and so it's, it's and those are things you see that are not controllable at policy level, but you try and, uh, and uh, uh, sort of replicate those as much as you can. For instance, um, uh, we, we know that uh, viral infections in general tend to become less virulent in the summer and months. Uh, and, and there's several reasons for that. Uh, the, you know, it hasn't gone away. We're still seeing these positive tests, but it, you know, the, the severity in terms of hospital infections has reduced and so we look at what factors uh, could be important there and and one of the things that uh, uh, we're very keen on and we do in terms of my practice and in neurology and certain um, other conditions is looking at vitamin d levels and how that affects the immune system and obviously we get a lot of that from the sun and that's something that we do see a natural upsurge in vitamin d levels in the summer in the uk i'm not saying that's the only factor but i think these are things that we need to have a reflection on so that we can try and replicate and improve those things um, as time goes on in the year and if we see a further change. Well,
0: exactly right. But what do you make, Wakar, of the kind of split which appears to be the case in the medical fraternity where some people like yourself are being quite pragmatic uh, and relatively kind of unhysterical, but there are quite a lot of hystericals as well who are saying, oh, there's definitely a second wave coming. You know, we have to be very careful. We have to make sure that we don't uh, unlock uh, the economy too quickly because there could be a problem. The sort of people who say that, you know, going back to school maybe isn't quite the right thing to do chris witty the chief medical officer now seems to be saying after having locked down the schools uh, that school uh, schools returning uh, in september is a good idea we meanwhile hear that 91 uh, percent of people in england live in neighborhoods that have not seen a single case of coronavirus in a month and so you know i can't understand why there is such a disparity between some people in the medical field and others
1: i, I simply i think it reflects the uncertainty and and uh, I think also, particularly if you look at the responsibility that um, you know, whether it be uh, Chris Whitty or other people who advise advising the government, they've got a huge responsibility on them. Obviously, that's their job, and they've got the expertise. But uh, if you look at the the consequence uh, if they get this wrong, particularly if they get it wrong in the sense of um, under um, underplaying this, then it, it, they they will they will they won't get any favours to this. So, for instance, if um, you know if we rewind back to too much and if they um, went for a, a non lockdown kind of more Swedish approach and and we saw obviously the number of deaths that we've seen the the instance um, the other thing that they, they would have had put back at their door was well you know if you'd have locked down you know not many people not as many people would have died and it's it's, it's a huge problem they're, they're, they're you know almost between a rock and a hard place so I do have sympathy for them because uh, and and I think because of that caution that's there because of not wanting to get this wrong, particularly in terms of uh, when potentially lives are at risk, then there is a tendency, I think, to be more risk averse and to be more cautious. Uh, you know, the argument being that it's better to be more cautious and save lives and be, uh, uh, you know, uh, more uh, uh, reckless and, uh, or less cautious and it potentially then be seen to cost lives. And so I think that's a dyna- one of the dynamics that's there. And when you particularly got a com- complex issue where there isn't 100% agreement and you know there isn't 100% agreement amongst the advisors then you've got this tendency then to go for the slightly more cautious approach yeah. so that you're not um, you know people aren't going to be injured or, or or die unnecessarily but the
0: effect that all of that uncertainty and inconsistency is having though Um, is that the public is beginning to lose faith in the science. The public is beginning to say, well, listen, they don't seem to agree on anything. They can't tell us for sure that it's dangerous. They think it's dangerous. and they're telling us to behave. But actually, we're not going to bother. And I've got a tweet here from Aid who says, can you please ask the doctor why we have to wear masks now when the rate is low, when three months ago deaths were higher and transmission uh, is lower? It's ludicrous. And that's a very good point. And lots of people are now beginning to say, well, hang on a minute. You know, we're now being told that we have to quarantine uh, if we come back from Portugal on Friday. But if we come back on Saturday, we don't. It doesn't really make any sense to most
1: ordinary people. Yeah, you know, there's, there's, you can, there's there's, this, and I think in your introduction as well, there's several inconsistencies and uncertainties you could pick out. And I think this is a problem of when um, we get to an issue like this, where um, you've got, a, you've got a, 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 a medical and scientific knowledge, which gives you kind of an overview, but then when you're having to implement it on a, 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 a microscopic level, mm. uh, so when you're having to implement it on everyday activities, and that we haven't got, um, there isn't the absolute knowledge to guide on every single aspect, and so then you're going on opinion and uh, uh it could be an opinion on a majority ra- rather uh, and it could be a very close majority rather than a unanimity because of the uncertainty that's there and so you you end up getting these 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 sort of uh, inconsistencies come through and and then you know knowledge can change but you end up advising something that's slightly different to what's been advised uh, it, it, you know, a few months ago, mm. and so uh, it, it, as I say, I do have sympathy for them. You can you can pick out lots of different examples of this, but I think it reflects the complexity, and also that I think we we as as, as doctors, scientists, we're very, well and truly I think outside our comfort zone here in the sense of having to put um, medical knowledge or scientific knowledge onto things which are uh, at a very
0: well now, now, levels, now, we you, now, you, now you now you now you're going to get Wakar, the, the sixty four thousand dollar question. Uh, if you were the chief medical officer of this country, what would you advise Boris Johnson to do today?
1: Yeah, I I think um, certainly the what I the, a couple of things which I put in my article. I think there has to be a reflection. Uh, and a, a, an urgent reflection because i think we probably will see an increase in symptoms no doubt we will see an increase in symptoms over the next few months now whether that's covid or other winter viruses who knows but we're going to see an upsurge in symptoms again which is going to be query covid probable covid and and i think there's got to be an urgent reflection as to what has worked and what hasn't worked what's necessary and what's not necessary in terms of uh over the last few months our our, our experience and and also looking at how other countries have have done this as well and picking out uh, good practice, where well and and uh, and what are the most important things to then concentrate on, and then looking at really what the level of priority is according to the level of infection and 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 in cases at the time. So it could be, you know, if the level of infections is actually remains low, that you don't need to uh, implement a great deal else, and we continue with a gradual. Loosening uh, and relaxation over time, Uh, but if there is an increase in infections, and it's looking at at picking out again, what are the things that uh, have been helpful, and what are the things that are not being so helpful or necessary, and then uh, uh, and then slowly uh, putting back those things that have been helpful in a measured way. I think there has to be also, and I, I at times felt that this hasn't really come through. There has to be also uh, um, a a, um, acknowledgement and uh, um, in the judgment of this as to the damaging effects. So in terms of people with other medical conditions, I don't think we can, unless there is a real crisis, we can go back to the situation where Large parts of the NHS has been closed, uh, and uh, we are not uh, doing the appropriate investigations of treatment for other medical conditions. Because this is, you know, it's taken such a long time, and it's it still continues to be very, very slow. the The return to normal service and to go back again, unless there is a very serious crisis, would would again be, I think, very damaging. So there has to be uh, this reflection in terms of what is done as to the potential damaging effects to the population as a whole as well. Absolutely. Waka, thanks very much indeed. Dr Waka Rashid,
0: consultant neurologist, uh, specialist in multiple sclerosis as well. Uh, A man who says we should not be stuck in a time warp. I think it's very clear now uh, that the medical fraternity is split. I think it's very clear that the medical fraternity doesn't know uh, which way to go. And it's now even more clear to me that Boris Johnson, the prime minister, uh, and everybody else in the cabinet needs to take this firmly by the throat and start doing something which is going to help the country rather than hinder it. That means going back to school. That means going back to work. That means going back to the office. I'm sorry for those of you who've been arguing with me all weekend, saying we've got every right to stay at home and work from home. Well, you haven't, actually. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, we had a very interesting conversation in the first hour with Dr. Wakar Rashid, consultant neurologist, uh, who's written in The Spectator that we basically need to move on and get out of this time warp that we're in and stop going back to the future uh, with this virus, because clearly uh, the virus has changed. The virus infection rate has changed. And so we should therefore change the policy that this government is running us on. Let's talk to Peter Hitchens. Uh, It's time for our weekly conversation. Peter, very good morning to you.
2: Morning to you. Thank
0: you very much indeed for joining us once more and um, uh, more I suppose uh, um, sort of investigative work on your behalf has led to you asking the Department of Health precisely what is the point of these quarantines?
2: Well I thought that if they, I, I genuinely thought this, I wasn't trying to be satirical as I sometimes am, I genuinely thought that if they would. Telling people to to destroy expensive and long-awaited holidays mm. and rush home in the middle of the night and drag their children onto onto late, extremely expensive, lately booked flights, mm. and do, do all these things because of an imposed quarantine. I thought that they were serious about it. I thought they must genuinely believe, as, as I personally do not, that there was some danger to the country by people holidaying in Spain. Now, so I asked, waiting for nearly a month uh, after the July the twenty fifth spanish quarantine i asked uh, how many people had actually been quarantined i asked uh, whether w- w- what uh, information they had on how many had, had developed infections how many had been hospitalized and if applicable how many had died and instead of an answer uh, i got blethers i got nothing first of all i was told uh, tried public health england this is the, the day was that before shortly it was, before it was destroyed day, day before <laughs> it was abolished right uh, Public Health England actually were quite cooperative, and they said, OK, well, we'll try to answer the question if that's what they say. But I continued to press the Department of Health as well. Then Public Health England uh, got in touch with me and said, sorry, we can't answer that. You have, you have to go back to the Department of Health. They then basically sent me a background statement, which was just a, a, a statement more or less of policy. It didn't right. say anything at all about the figures that I asked for. It was as if I hadn't, I hadn't asked them. Uh, it was actually verging on the insulting. Hmm. They didn't say we aren't prepared to divulge these figures, or they didn't say we haven't got them. They just uh, answered a question I hadn't asked. And when I wrote to them and said, surely this is some mistake, uh, no, they said it's not a mistake. And then I said, well, in in that case, I I obviously have to say what I'm going to say, which Mm. is that you appear not to know anything about something which is very serious. And that's what I'm doing. I've obviously put in the freedom of information inquiry on this now, and I'll be interested to see how much success that has. Right. A lot of people who, are, who aren't in journalism, and by, by the way, members of the public can do freedom of information inquiries. They can. It? No, it's, it's quite no difficult
0: bar, though to navigate the system, isn't it? Because it's
2: difficult to do, but what, what I should say to people is that in many cases, it, it isn't the magic bullet. It doesn't mean that they actually cough up the information no. you're asking for, and I suspect in this case that uh, that, that will... Be so that I will I, I will get an answer which is not an answer, right. uh, or I, maybe I'll be told it's too expensive to. Um, do you think to, it's because they don't, don't actually? What...
0: Do you think it's because they don't actually know the answer?
2: Well, my suspicion has to be that they don't know the answer. Yeah. But it, it, I, I can't say for, for certain because I don't know. But it, it, if surely if they had the answer, they'd tell me. Yes. Uh, the, the other possibility is that the answer was that uh, they that of the people who were who, who who got home too late to escape the quarantine. Uh, they've they've they either haven't made any great effort to survey them or the answers that have come back from those that have been quarantined is that none of them have actually fallen ill. Right. Uh, which well, I've, I've, undermine, I've... undermine their propaganda which is constantly to keep us in a state of fear about mm. something which frankly doesn't justify the the measures being taken No, quite. It.
0: Well, I mean, I've said this before uh, and I think I may have even said it to you last week that, you know, it's one thing when they say we must test everybody, we must be testing people all the time because testing is the answer. And then when you say well, why don't you test people when they come back from holiday and that way you can just judge whether or not to quarantine them. Oh no, well, the thing is testing isn't entirely the answer. And you go, well you can't have it both ways. Either testing is the answer or it's not the answer. Which is it? Well, of
2: course, but of course they can have it both ways, and they do. And what they do is they they they, they send battalions of testers into places like Leicester and 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 surge through the suburbs of that city, looking for cases, as they call them, of people who are say the principal symptom of COVID-19 in Britain today is that you are perfectly healthy. Yes. Uh, and that statement, which is absolutely true, is the seems to me to sum up the the whole nature of everything. That the these these people who are being these cases that are being found. Uh, and so we're told that Birmingham has to close down, or or half the towns in the Pennines have to close down. Or These people who are being found are not ill. Yes, well this and, is uh, the thing. They they don't. And if and I I believe I, I haven't been able to I believe that in in hospitals in England uh, the other day there were no deaths from COVID at all. Certainly, the daily, the daily deaths, according to the, the official statistics, are now bumping round the, uh, the zero mark. Uh, August 19th, 16th, August the 20th, August the 21st. What have we got? Hmm. I think August twenty four, August 22nd, 18. Uh, but it, it is—it's it, really tiny. And of course, this has been declining since April the 8th. And that is the—that is the true figure that they should be publicising, but they don't, and which of the media should be publicising. But especially the BBC, which is completely committed to sustaining this panic, right. don't actually cover properly and are astonished when anyone gets through their barricades and comes onto a BBC program and says, actually, um, it isn't that serious. Right. Well, it's come uh, to something. They, um, they so, themselves have fooled themselves into believing that it is a, a, a huge 1918 uh, style pandemic yeah. which it simply isn't
0: well it comes to something does it not and I'm, I'm not in any way denigrating what you do but that, but that you as a, as a newspaper columnist and me as a, as a radio presenter are the only people seemingly left that actually ask proper questions anymore because i'm looking at a story now um, mail online huge covid outbreak shuts dundee school 17 staff and two pupils test positive surely the question should be well how sick are they are, are well, any of them
2: should, actually ill? I mean, it, it should be. And, uh, but that, just people just don't seem to ever ask this question, how many of these people are ill? Yeah. Uh, and then we had this whole performance of the, the, the medical officers of all the four countries of the United Kingdom uh, on Saturday night putting out this statement saying it was perfectly safe to go back to school. Well, you could make exactly the same statement about uh, about any place of yeah, work. Yeah, right. Uh, it's, the, the, the levels of danger. I'm, I'm running this campaign at the moment, the, 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 the tortoise campaign. Right. Uh, which is, is, uh, I'm telling people that they should be really, really worried about tortoises falling from the sky. But (laughs) 2,500 years ago, the the Greek uh, dramatist and tragedian Aeschylus, uh, sunning himself on holiday in Sicily, was killed uh, when an eagle, uh, mistaking his bald head for a rock, dropped a tortoise on it. Right. Uh, And it must be about time this happened again, do you not think? I Uh, I imagine we must be very careful. The chances of it are probably statistically much the same of a healthy person dying of COVID in this country. So let's all wear anti-tortoise helmets. Uh, And I'm suggesting that that eagles um, should probably be blindfolded if if they can be found so they can't see. And tortoises greased so eagles can't pick them up. Yes. And I think we we should take serious precautions against this danger because it's exactly comparable. Uh, the, the danger of having an eagle drop a tortoise on your head in modern Britain is exactly comparable to the danger of actually of, of actually dying. Well, this baby. is the
0: thing. I mean, there are many things to be frightened of. I mean, some of them exist, some of them don't exist. You can be frightened. You can have night terrors uh, and therefore never go to sleep on the basis that you might be frightened
2: by something. That yeah, you, I, you I dream have monsters about. under my bed. Well, exactly I mean, right. I, I, mean, I mean, everybody else. Knows but the trouble but, is, though, terrifying.
0: the trouble is, though, that there are so many people. I mean, I've been having an ongoing sort of row over the weekend with people who say how great it is to work from home and how nonsensical it is for them to ever. Get go back to work in an office because they much prefer working from home because they get much more done they get to see their children and they get to um you know uh, actually not commute anywhere but unfortunately we are a, a sociable uh, bunch of creatures and actually getting to meet other people is probably a good thing rather than a bad thing
2: well it's essential in so many jobs that yeah you, that you are in actual physical contact with the people you're dealing with for the germination of ideas uh, for you know, f- for, me- for making sure that people communicate properly and for so many other things we didn't all go to work in factories and offices by accident we did it because it was it was it was necessary yeah. and uh, and important for the economy i remember there was a time when a lot of people did work from home mm. uh, and now they don't and I don't know whether people may, may be telling themselves that they, they they're working harder when they work from home, which, which makes one wonder how hard they were working when they well, were. Well, I mean, work. of course, I, we only got their I, word I for that, haven't we? That's the point, is it? No. Uh, it's it, it, and and the other thing is, of course, the devastation that this visits on the economy, particularly of of London, mm. uh, which is uh, you can you may say, well, I don't care about London, and a lot of that's people. That's what don't. they do say. But they but the problem with that is that London, whether you like it or not, is a vital part of our economy, and if yes. London dies. Uh, then that will affect everybody because it is such a huge part of our yeah. economy. And it w- just as people say, "Well, what does it matter if landlords are not getting their rent?" Well, I say it matters because your pension well, it very is much so. certainly based on the rent that's paid to those yes. landlords. And if and if that collapses, then your pension will collapse. Mm. And people don't realise how how economies join up at the back.
0: Exactly right, and that is quite depressing to me at the moment. But let me give you a couple of good examples of going back to school. Your kids are probably older now, mine. I've got still two kids in the school system. Um, we've had an email from uh, my thirteen-year-old sir, school which says that uh, all years will be sort of isolated amongst themselves um basically they won't meet in years you know the year above or the year below they'll go to different uh, to lunch groups they'll go to different break times and if you are uh, going to drive your children to school you must not mix with any other uh, people from any other household despite the fact that people from other households are going to be mixing in the classroom you know yeah, it's, it's a form of madness
2: some schools are making the the, the 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 children wear face masks or visors. I see in, right. in, in in Scotland. Every every previously normal experience is being turned into something rather like a visit to a mortuary. Yeah, I, and and we are and, and every human being is, is being treated like a toxic danger. Yeah. And it this the the damage that this does to society is huge. But the terrible things that one hears about people with elderly relatives in care homes and the limited contact they've been allowed to have with them are are actually that the word tragic simply does not begin to encompass the totally unnecessary unhappiness and loss. of People who've often uh, who were perfectly uh, healthy and happy before this began, Mm. forced into this isolation, deprived of human contact, have sunk uh, into into terrible physical and mental states because they've been deprived of the company of their families. And this this seems to me to be actually actively cruel, and it
0: should be stopped. But worse than that is this, you know, this overburdening kind of group of people who seem to think that they never ever want to mix with anybody else ever again. They're quite happy to work in their little pod at home, uh, seeing only their family, nobody else, not really going anywhere apart from some local coffee shop, not going ever getting on a train, uh, not ever going anywhere far away from where they live. I mean, it's a kind of backwardness about it.
2: There is, but it is an effect, of course, that the internet has had on quite a lot mm. of people. these these unfortunate persons who sit in, 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 in basements quietly converting sugary drinks into human lard. Yeah and posting unpleasant messages uh, yes. on Twitter. I, I see you had right a couple of those, of those but the I, weekend. Let's, let's all try not to turn into them. Yes. To to be, they they, they seem to me to be a warning, not an example. Yes, quite. Uh, I think that it, society is society. It is. It, it, it involves mingling with people. Even misanthropes like me, we need a bit of social contact.
0: Well, it's good for, it's good for us, and I mean, it's good for everybody, and, and, and you're absolutely right that it's a danger uh, if that does not ever come back. But, I mean, you know, what confidence do you have? I know you don't have much confidence in Boris Johnson the government but what confidence do you have say for example that if we do get everybody back to school that that might act as some kind of catalyst for everything else
2: well I hope it does because although I'm I'm not an optimist I I can see there's a possibility that it might certainly a complete precondition the way our society is organized where very very few um, mothers or indeed fathers are now at home to look after their children means there have to be schools or people can't go out to work so it is a precondition but one hears uh, from Scotland of, of quite a lot of cases of schools opening and then closing again yeah. in, in, in panics. And I think this is what we will see, that the schools will open again, uh, but then very, very quickly lots of them will, on the excuse of supposed spreading infections, will close again. Hmm. And that it, I'm not at all sure this will, be, uh, this, this will be a success. And, of course, we know uh, that the teachers' unions are far from committed to it and will not, uh, will not how should we say, make any special effort... To make a success of it so I, I, I think we should keep our fingers crossed as to whether it will work. I't say it might, but I think mm. we can expect quite a lot of, um, of reclosings uh, between now and Christmas. Yeah I mean uh, I don't, it, I don't I'm, the noises
0: off. that I'm currently hearing from certainly some of the unions and even some members of the Labour Party in the opposition are, are clearly they're sort of laying the groundwork for things not to go smoothly it seems to me.
2: Well who knows i mean i don't don 't want to make accusations where they're not uh, where, where they're not justified it's it's possible i mean I've, I've, I have a, a a an ambivalent attitude towards trade unions because I was a labor correspondent for a long time. They do sometimes do good and hmm. I, I won't entirely well, some of them do treat, treat them treat them as, as, as villainous because they're, they're important but i I just don't get the impression there's a huge commitment uh, in the in, in the major teaching union particularly for um for the reopening and I think it should have happened long before this and would have happened long before this if it hadn't been for them yes I think that that ought to be remembered
0: no quite no I'm indebted to you as well for educating me about something which I didn't know about and that's Saint Bartholomew's Day you put out a tweet yesterday saying that Ah, uh, our our conversation today would be uh, coinciding with the anniversary of Saint Bartholomew's Day which sounds dreadful and I looked up what it was um, it really was a horrendous massacre wasn't it
2: Yes, and it it soured the relations between Britain and France for a very very long time, and uh, and of course it it it, it caused huge uh, grief in the whole history of France uh, ever afterwards. Yeah. Still, you still see, and if you, there's, there's, I think I think it's at the Rue de Rivoli in Paris, is still a monument to the the, the, the the murder of Admiral Coligny, the Huguenot leader who was murdered that night, and this shocking uh, betrayal of, uh, of what had been a a, a compromise again it shows the value of compromise in politics but no it's extraordinary that we should um, th- th- this, this would have been a, a remembered thing a hundred years ago when people mm. knew history but it's not now
0: No, well certainly not if the BBC have got anything to do with it because I don't know whether you wish to enter into the argument about last night at the proms but certainly um, there well, will I... be many who, who will do and we'll be taking a lot of calls on it later on today but I mean again the BBC kind of shoots itself in the foot here doesn't it because it probably won't end up doing it but it makes out that it might want to
2: well, I don't know. I think that the, the, this problem has come up before, hasn't it, with Land of Hope and Glory? Yes. And it's obvious the BBC hates all that kind of thing. Right. Uh, and because they hate it, one feels that, that one needs to stand up for it. But the, something which I said uh, would come back to haunt me if I, if I got too involved in this, is some months ago I said, well, given our complete and utter flaccid, supine reaction, Uh, to the shutdown of our society and the the, the attack on our personal liberty uh, from March onwards. It strikes me as rather difficult for anyone to stand up and say Britain's never, never, never will be slaves. Uh, And as for Britannia ruling the waves, well, I'm coming from an old naval family. I can tell you, it it certainly doesn't. (laughs) Half the Royal Navy is is immobilized by the Quayside because they can't get the ships to move. Yes, but I mean, in some ways... We're not a maritime power... So if people want to sing it, well, okay, that's fine by me. It's a a great song. But what it actually says is something which is no longer true. We don't rule the waves or even indeed rule the waves around our own shores, as is evident from what's going on in the channel at the moment. And and, and what's more, we are perfectly happy uh, to be ordered about by by bullying governments into doing things which, frankly, we ought not to do. So uh, before you sing it, ask yourself, do you really mean it?
0: Yes, no, I think you're absolutely right. However, um, there is such a thing as enjoyment, which obviously the BBC has forgotten how to do. Um, I worry that you may have forgotten how to do it, Peter, as well. But, no, you know, no. so I have a life some... of total misery. Some... I, I, I must
2: go off in a minute and lash myself. I know, the get bar, the old hair bar, bar shirt bar, bar back. Bar back. Yeah, get yeah, it out of the dry bar bar cleaners. Bar, bar, whip. But,
0: but the thing is, right, that there, are, there are many things which I find uplifting in life. And I'm not a massive fan of, of the last night of the proms, and I'm not a massive fan of doing anything as a group. But it's a lovely song, and it's a wonderful thing. Thing, and I think that there's something wrong with an institution which calls itself British, uh, which is somehow against it.
2: Yeah, my, I, when, I, when I was growing up, we knew the words. Yeah. And what those words say is something that's very, very different. We also used to sing uh, at school uh, when, when I was small another song to so the tune of, um, t- of Jeremiah Clark's trumpet, Voluntary Britain, sing that all the world shall know we are free. Uh, and this was, this was it, it, the, the whole thing is now totally unsingable because yeah. it's not true. And I, I think if you know the words, it becomes harder. Uh, well, to, so does God save the Queen, in a way. Well, that I mean, there are some verses of that that I think people probably be quite reluctant to sing. Well, that. the Scots it's don't like that, it, do they? second verse. On the other hand, it's it, it, the, 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 the verse everybody sings, and some people know, is pretty harmless. I should have thought. But I think the worry that I have... It doesn't engage you in, 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 in claiming that you're the kind of person who stands up to the government when it pushes you around, either, which Rule Britannia does. No,
0: but, of course, that's because those of us who do stand up to bullies don't actually need to sing about it. And it certainly don't need to surround ourselves with other people singing about it, either. We just do it. But what about the uh, juxtaposition uh, of the BBC wanting to get rid of it and instead replace it uh, with what Lord Hall of Birkenhead, rather hilariously, calls himself? Uh, he says that the BBC can be the nation's voice. Well, I don't think so.
2: Well, no, just imagine a song about that. (laughs) Exactly. It's bound to be the Christmas number one, isn't it?
0: Well, quite. I mean, the thing is, we are ruled, unfortunately, not by government. We are ruled by the people that run the BBC. We are ruled by the people that run the civil service. I mean, we have seen over the course of the last several weeks that, you know, actually, the sorts of things that we are being sort of culturally fed are not at all coming from anywhere, but these kind of higher learning institutions. And that's what I object to.
2: Yes, but it works, and that's the problem with it. When I, I, 20 years ago, wrote my book about the abolition of Britain, said, oh, come on, stop being so ridiculous, Mm. what's being abolished? And and, and now, everyone says, "Um, yes, see what you mean. Uh, which is my fate yes 20, 20 years later everyone sees what i mean well so, this is the
0: trouble you, you know you've been a soothsayer for too long now i'm going to finish it with a great tweet here from somebody called uh, 80s music man he says so i suppose chris witty will be backing the forced wearing of tortoise helmets now please don't give him any more ideas peter
2: well, I know, but I think I've decided that it, it seems to me that some of the most successful, uh, successful undermining of bad government has been done by mocking it.
0: Yes, I think that's and the I only think way. the,
2: the, the, the tortoise helmet, control the tortoise, uh, I wear my tortoise helmet to protect you, uh, is, and is, save lives is possibly well. more likely to get somewhere than actually setting out, as I have done ceaselessly <laughs> now for five months, the facts, yes. the arguments, the figures, mm. the experts, I quote, over and over and over again. What difference has that made? Right. So let's laugh at them instead and yes. see, whether that, see whether that works. It, yeah, it, it, I think the, that's a good it, plan. Beyond the fringe, and that was the week that was, overthrew a whole system of government in this country in the 1960s right. uh, by laughing at it. So maybe this is the answer.
0: I think we finally hit upon something. Well played. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens, Man on Sunday, columnist. Uh, save the tortoise or beware of the tortoise.
1: one of those things. We're going to have to start a hashtag. Uh, this is Talk Radio.
0: honest i can't think of a better way to introduce andre walker who's our next guest in fact i think it should be a rule at talk radio that every time andre walker's on they play this first go on marvellous great stuff isn't it it's fantastic why would you want to ban that because you work for the bbc what a collection of planks andre very good morning to you mate good
3: morning you know um At at election counts, we used to sing Land of Hope and Tory to the Labour Party, which I always thought was appropriate. Yes, it's very good
0: indeed. But I mean, it tells you something, does it not, about where we have reached in this country, where we're even having to discuss the likelihood that that could be removed from Last Night at the Proms. I mean, you just get rid of Last Night at the Proms if you want to, but you don't have Last Night at the Proms without Land of Hope and Glory.
3: Yeah, well, it's the sort of uh, Harry and Meghanization of The Last Night of the Problems, isn't it? Because if you think about Harry and Meghan, they are the sort of people that appeal to um, to people who would vote to abolish the royal family anyway. Yes. And so what what's happened with this is The Last Night of the Proms uh, now is intended to appeal to people who will never watch The Last Night of the problems. Mm. I, I personally, look, you know, we're not going to have, um, you know, a land of hope and glory on the X Factor, so, look, you know, some people will want to watch certain programmes. Other people want to watch other programmes. The idea that just because you don't particularly like The Last of The problems, it should change and pander to you, I think is completely sad and completely unacceptable. But it just, look, it just talks the wider thing, doesn't it? Nowadays, uh, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters what you say. Yeah. Um, people are not interested in your actions. They're interested in sort of wagging the finger at you and saying that you are, you know, a bad person. Mm. And uh, and, and, they want, and constantly people are want to tell you what to do with your life uh, because they think it'll make themselves feel better. Yes. I think it's pretty pathetic.
0: Well, it is. And it takes us rather nicely on to the subject we were going to talk about anyway, Andre, which is the latest outrage, apparently, uh, which is punctuation. Uh, I don't know about you, but I sometimes put a full... I I actually had to check myself to see what I do. Uh, I sometimes put a full stop at the end of a text message. Um, I don't always, but it certainly never struck me as being offensive if I did do it.
3: I mean, look, uh, some people are professional attendees, aren't they? They Mm. absolutely love it. I I remember once I was at this... um, I was doing this TV show. There was this lady who, after everything I said, and I know, OK, it is me, but she kept going, uh, actually, I find that offensive. So I thought, <laughs> well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mount a campaign the next day. So I walked in and I said, hello. I said, oh, you must. I'm sorry, you must find that offensive. Yeah. She said, why would I find hello offensive? And I said, well, hello's English, the colonial language, yeah. you know, the language of the oppressor. Right. And then I said to her, would you like a cup of tea? Oh, uh, well, you might find that offensive you said "Well, why would i find that offensive well you know tea was part of the british empire yes and and, and you know and in the end after about three hours of doing that she gave up but i think it illustrates an important point which is that there are some people who just enjoy being able to say this and actually i think that it's them who are abusive because what they want to do is they want to change people's behavior people who are completely innocent just in order to make themselves feel good about looking down at people. Yeah, I think actually anybody who's bothered by a text message at the end of a um, and a text message and full stop at the end of the text message is just a sad individual who really just needs to get a
0: life. Yes exactly right and I mean the story that I was reading today sort of sh- summed up what's wrong with society. Uh, apparently crime novelist, a woman by the name of Sophie Hannah, who I confess I've never read uh, has a 16 year old son and she decided to ask the 16 year old son uh, whether it was true that if you got a text message with a full stop at the end it was offensive. The 16 year old son apparently replied that it was and so she's now adopted his view and that's the problem it's the infantilization of the world isn't it? So this woman who's got 16 year old son uh, is now living her life as if she was a 16 year old.
3: I, I, I don't understand the rules on 16 year olds because if you are Shabima Begin, the uh, the ISIS terrorist, yes. then 16 is far too young to make a decision mm. about your future and you must not be uh, treated badly. And you must be forgiven. Yes. If you're Greta Thunberg and you're 16, then the whole world needs to listen to you because you are some sort of God-made human. Yeah. Um. It's 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 <laughs> utterly bizarre. Yeah. Uh, but but you but you're absolutely right. The idea that some pathetic child is going to tell us all how to live our lives. I mean, is is pretty pretty sad. But look, ultimately, the best thing is, Mike. I know you live your life like this as well. Uh, ultimately, we're all going to offend the snowflakes. Might as well get on with it. Yes. You know? And and actually, I find it quite good fun. Actually, you know, and and. You know, sometimes I appear on... I mean, I appeared on a TV show the other day talking about overweight people, mm. and apparently uh, I was not only... I not only fat shaming people, but I was also a misogynist as well. Right. well. Amen to that. Well done. God, I quite enjoyed it.
0: <laughs> but the, tr- the trouble is, right, that as you say, no matter what you say, no matter where you go, no matter who you talk to, you're going to offend someone. So you might as well go the full Monty. It's, a, it's the old sheep is, as well as a lamb conversation, isn't it? You might as well uh, be hung for one uh, as much as the other. But but this is the trouble now um you have to be quite careful given uh, what you do for a living and what i do for a living uh, to make sure that you don't overstep the mark but at the same time you know common sense surely has to prevail in this situation um and i think the problem now for these snowflakes is that they're worrying about so much that actually the really serious stuff doesn't even get a look in i mean if you're really seriously going to tell me that you're offended by a full stop then where do you get
3: what happens when you start uh, talking about racism yeah, that's right. I mean, actually, there is something where I would have some sympathy with these snowflake young people. Um, if you are worried about full stop at the end of a text message, then that does not sound like you are somebody who is particularly politically empowered no. or somebody who feels they have a particular stake in society. And, and if I was going to go for a wider point, I would say that, look, uh, you know, the, the lack of democracy caused by the European Union, the lack of ability to own your own home, the lack of ability potentially to uh, to to uh, you know enter education without large levels of debt yeah. potentially that is part of the reason why these people are attempting to gain power through language but you know you constantly see this i think with the black community who uh, are constantly finding a new word to be offended about uh, in terms of how they are described And and I've often thought it's nothing to do with the word. It's actually to do with the fact they don't feel empowered at all. And maybe we need to do something about that and kind of engage young people more in the country. But as I say, if you live in a country where whichever way you vote, nothing changes and you don't have a stake in capitalism because you can't own your own home, then actually, uh, potentially, that is the wider problem.
0: Well, you would think that's what people might be more worried about. Also, if I was at university right now, I'd be a bit more worried about whether there's going to be an economy to get a job in over the time I come out of it, rather than actually whether or not there's a, um, a a. Full stop at the end of your latest
3: rejection letter well but but if you can't do anything about it then maybe worrying about the full stop is the only thing you can do and i think that that's my point mm. um, you know if you look at the the lockdown if you are 16 17 18 there is virtually no chance whatsoever of you getting sick with coronavirus and yet your gcses and a levels will have been cancelled you'll have been grounded for six months uh, your university place will be a complete mess. The economy will have declined by 20%, and actually, fundamentally, your future will have been mortgaged up in order to keep you under house arrest. And so, I suspect you're not going to be too happy with what's going on. And actually, I think that we see um, we see the the effects of that manifesting itself in multiple ways. One of them is. Uh, These illegal raves and parties and whatever, where people are just so sick of being cooped up that now they've taken to lawlessness. And I think it's also uh, being angry about all sorts of crazy things. Um, You know, the the idea that attacking British police is going to improve policing in Milwaukee, as an example, uh, was obviously ludicrous. But it was something that did nonetheless happen.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely right, Andre. Listen, great to talk to you. See you back here very, very soon. Andre Walker's been hosting uh, the early morning show here on Talk Radio. He'll be back very shortly with that, of course. Uh, Lots more to do here uh, on the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Don't get offended by punctuation. It's not a very good idea, I promise you. Andre says maybe that's all they've got left because they've got no power over anything else. I'm not buying that. Are you? Now, what on earth is wrong with you if you don't enjoy listening to that, right? It's one of the great songs. It's one of the most uplifting uh, songs of all time in our history. And it's about our history. It doesn't mean that you have to go around telling everybody that we're better than everybody else. That's not what it's about. It's about enjoying yourself. Too many people now don't even know how to do that. Let's talk to Martin Daubley, a man who I know knows how to enjoy himself. Martin, a very good afternoon to you.
4: Hello, Mike, the home of common sense. Whatever you're drinking, Maker, I'd like a pint of (laughs) it.
0: Listen, I mean, I've already got people tweeting me going, Listen, just the fact that you're playing this stuff is cheering us up. You know, they look out, they see the empty streets, they see the Ramonas wandering about with their heads, you know, trailing on the ground, going, It's all going to be terrible. It makes you feel good to listen to that kind of stuff, doesn't it?
4: Yeah, I think that's the point, though, is it? It's almost like having a good time or certainly feeling patriotic, proud to be British, is now considered. And the fact that BBC are leading the charge, I I think, is indicative. You know, the BBC, I can only conclude on our Turkey voting for Christmas. There have been some severely wrong-headed decisions by the BBC of late axing the over-75 licence fee, at the same time as spending £100 million on diverse and inclusive content. They had years of anti-Brexit bias, editorial uh, mistakes of bias against Donald Trump. They cannot contain themselves over that. And now here we are. I think the biggest act of cultural vandalism the BBC has ever committed, we have a Finnish conductor, a South African soprano, um, telling us to have a Black Lives Matter proms. We need to stop messing around about this, Mike, and I know you don't. Black Lives Matter want to abolish the police. They want to abolish capitalism. This is not some... The feel-good movement. They're a dangerous, far-left organization. They are being legitimized by the BBC. And going for Royal Britannia, going for God Save the Queen, entirely fits the modus operandi of a hard-left political movement, which wants us to feel ashamed of our country. It wants us to despise our monarch. And in the end, what's left? Well, what's left is the state. What's left is socialism. Now, they roll their eyes and mm. call us xenophobes and little Englanders for, for puffing our chests about this. But Mike, this isn't this isn't water pistols. This is real. Yeah, I think this is the thin end of a wedge. They want to erode Britishness from the very realms within the corridors of the
0: BBC. It's a dangerous precedent. And I think we must kick back. I think you're absolutely right and funnily enough somebody tweeted me the the BBC's little uh, ditty that they put out a little video about how they're going to spend 100 million quid uh, on improving the diversity at the BBC to which I said well I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing the quota uh, and the number of people they're going to hire from the white working classes of this country because you can walk through every single floor of Broadcasting House and you won't find one kid who's come from a working class housing estate whether male or female uh, or, or of indeterminate gender." They don't exist there.
4: Yeah, and I think that's another really important point. We, we must not lose sight of the fact that these people set themselves up as the saviours. Um, the, they're kicking against the system. These people are the system. Yeah. They are the new elite. They're the self-appointed, pseudo-intellectual, half-baked new elite that have decided that Britishness is bad when viewed through the prism of the worst things committed Slavery, the empire, colonialism, they don't want to talk about modern day slavery, Black Lives Matter, because guess what? Most of the slavery is in Africa. Most slaves are kept by black people. Most slaves are black people. Doesn't fit the script. They'd rather go to war on rural Britannia to try and crunch us down. And I think... You know, it is part of what they do
0: and we must resist. Yes, absolutely. And I'd quite like to see the BBC, which is meant to be a news organisation, actually covering properly what is going on in Portland right now uh, in the United States of America, in the inner cities of America, like New York City, which is now basically a no-go zone after 11 o'clock at night, if you're white. Uh, and I'm afraid that is the result of the uh, sort of lionization of this organization, Black Lives Matter. They're thugs. Uh, they are people who would like to torch every city in America and burn it to the ground.
4: Yeah, and the whole idea of first they came to the Churchill statue, then they set fire to the union flag on the cenotaph and they were called peaceful protesters yeah. for that. Barack Obama on, on at the Democrat conference the other evening was calling them peaceful protesters as peaceful. Police- police cars were burning on the streets of Portland and Chicago. The media are completely tone deaf and selectively myopic to this, because this is the monster they created. The mostly remain democratic, liberal leaning media that took the knee metaphorically and in many instances physically to this movement. Now they are in a sense, they are indebted to it. They have to bow down to it. And the whole point, of rule Britannia is that Britain shall never bow. And we are bowing at the moment, Mike. I think we need to remember this is a cultural movement. It's insidious and radio stations like yours, actually, you should be clapping your hands
0: because they'll be coming to you. Oh, they are.
4: Of well, listen, they because are. They I mean, It's off. no wonder our yeah. audience
0: is rocketing up because all of the people who have seen what goes on outside of this building are thinking, what on earth is happening? I mean, listen to the words of Lord Hall of Birkenhead, right? The outgoing BBC director general. He's going to make a speech today uh, with his very well-padded uh, final salary pension scheme to the Edinburgh Television Festival in which he is going to say the BBC doesn't need less taxpayers' money. It needs more taxpayers' money. You know why? because they need to fight they need to fight the fake news being spread about Brexit uh, and about the second pandemic. Uh, unbelievable stuff. He's so out of touch. He literally might yeah. as well be living in a cave.
4: Yeah, and as, as a Brexit Party MEP, who was a TV and radio pundit for years before I got involved in politics, I was often the only Brexiteer on a panel, yeah. on every TV show or radio show, as everyone. It's nonsense to talk about bias, Well, it's not. It is. There is loads of bias. It's nonsense to say they must fight against fake news. Many people believe the BBC to be the chief instigator of fake news in Britain because they have such a political bias. When they are choosing to get into bed with people like Black Lives Matter, I think the majority of common sense Brits kick back against that. And you're right, by the way, about the working class thing. This is a middle class, um, private school, Oxbridge, educated elite, think they know better. They thought they knew better about Brexit. They thought they knew better about politics in America. They think they know better about Black Lives Matter. And now they think they know better about our national anthems. And on every occasion, Mike, they, they backed the wrong horse.
0: Yes. Well, it was, uh, it was pointed out to me, and I'd forgotten this, actually. You may be too young to remember it. But at the end of the TV night, whenever it used to end at sort of midnight uh, on a Saturday, whenever I'd finished watching Match the Day as a kid, they used to play the national anthem and then you would close out, and that would be the end of TV until tomorrow morning, or tomorrow lunchtime quite often. I don't remember when they stopped doing it, but they certainly don't do it anymore.
4: No, again, it's it's been airbrushed. I remember that. I'm not I'm not, I'm not as, as young as you think, Mike. I do remember that. And <laughs> well, you're in very it good shape. <laughs> it, it, it was a part of our of our cultural landscape. We yeah. were taught to respect our elders. We were taught to respect the flag. We were taught to respect... Queen and country. And actually, we were taught to respect the, the political opinions for those who disagreed with yeah, us. Yeah, of course. Like my wife's a Remainer. I was a Brexit party MEP. I'll sit down and talk about politics with anybody. But What we have now is a new intolerance. Mm. And if you disagree, you're racist, you're xenophobic, you're thick. I get called thick all the time because I voted Brexit. And it's still going on. And you're still called the same things if you kick back against the cancellation of our national anthems And once again, I'll say this, Mike, it will be dressed up um, by the woke Twitterati as little Englanders proving that they're racist because it's a slavery um, worshipping anthem. It is not. It's totemic of what it means to be British. We should be allowed to celebrate it. And I think we really have to stand up for these things. They may seem like small things, but they're baby steps, they're fairy steps, I think, towards uh, a broader cultural takeover, Mm. an erosion of Britishness, and in the end, will all be silently complicit to this new woke religion. The cult of woke is taking over media It's taking over the mainstream and we have to fight back.
0: Keep fighting, Mike. Yes, I will. Absolutely right. And we also have to encourage a lot of other people to do the same. And I worry um, about the government because the government has got sort of, you know, indicators of wokeness going on. Um, You know, I don't like the fact that they're trying to be so green all the time, talking about, you know, getting rid of cars and replacing everybody, everything with bikes. You know, talking about people making sure that their, you know, their energy bills are are somehow reduced and you're not allowed to have uh, coal fired power power stations anymore, all of the stuff that you would think that the Conservatives would leave alone to the free market, they don't seem to be doing. And yet, you know, the public, the great British public are in, in ever increasing numbers telling me anyway, I haven't got a licence for the BBC anymore, or I'm going to do away with my licence for the BBC. This must be having an effect on them. Yeah, I think
4: it certainly is. I mean, the defund the BBC movement is, is really gathering a pace and a really interesting phenomenon as well, is um, I, I'm quite happy, I must admit, with a, with a few conservative MPs, and I was speaking with them yesterday about all of this, and they are simply refusing to go on the BBC now. Yeah. Uh, we've seen already ministers refusing to go on, but rank-and-file conservatives now don't want anything to do with it. We live in an era of gotcha journalism, yeah. a single soundbite is revved up, because undeniably the BBC is, I believe, anti Conservative, And I say that as somebody who isn't a conservative. Mm. And the problem, we go back to the proms. It's, a, it's an elderly, aged, conservative, white, middle England thing. It's absolutely emblematic of everything that the wokes hate. Mm. That's why they've gone for it. At the same time, those are the people who most willingly um, consume their news from the BBC and pay their license yeah. fee. But we can see there's a huge disconnect. Between the tail, the woke tail that's wagging the BBC dog, although I think actually now um, woke goes into every corner of the BBC apart from those who just keep quiet. Yeah. I mean, how many conservatives, friends of mine work for the BBC and I reckon about 10% of people there voted Brexit. In what, in what way does the BBC represent? Britain if that's the case
0: right well also Tony and Hall Lord Hall of Birkenhead will also say today in his speech um, that he's very nearly reached his aim which was to get a reach of 500 million people uh, being uh, viewers of the BBC around the world now I'm sorry the BBC's job is not to provide news for people around the world the BBC's job is to provide news for the people that pay for it i.e. the people in this country rather than the people who don't pay for it uh, who live somewhere else Yeah, part of the BBC's um,
4: existential problem, I think, they don't know what they stand for anymore. Mm. Um, Are they a global news service? They've obliterated the local news services across the UK in terms of television, radio, and newspaper, uh, all on taxpayers' watch and bill. They're also competing for mega salaries of celebrities. So we've got Gary Lineker on 1.75 million. Well, how about axing his bloody fee? Yeah, right. Letting pensioners have have a free license. There are lots of things they could do, but they, they stand in this dichotomy. They think they're a public service broadcaster who should be unbiased. They're clearly not. Yet they're competing with private sector wages and also obliterating local and global news services. I think we need to look at a completely way, a new way of funding the BBC. We need to strip it back, go back to basics, Stop moralising, start being straight-laced and just do what the BBC used to do. And Mike, maybe that means playing the national anthem at the end
0: of the day too. And I'll I'll be the first one to stand up, mate. Well, I would say that's a great idea. But how about this, right? Last week, they say, uh, on a basis of cutting back, The two things they're going to do away with are the news at six and the news at ten. Well, hang on a minute. That's what public service broadcasting is. It's meant to be about the news, isn't it? I don't care if they want to produce strictly come dancing. It's of no interest to me. It's something that should be done commercially. People should not be paid fortunes to do anything for the BBC. They should all be on, you know, basically civil service type salaries. And I don't mean the big ones. I mean the small ones. And they should have a much smaller staff and they should do a lot less, frankly.
4: I agree with that. And, you know, this whole point of... The six o'clock and the ten o'clock news being swept aside in favour of what um, they—they've they got news round talking about LGBT. They've yeah. got news round uh, the children's program. I'm um, talking about Black Lives Matter. My yeah. children who attend. Watch this and they go, you know, is Black Lives Mass a good thing, is it dad? And how do you have a conversation with a ten-year-old about Marxism? Right. Uh, it, and so, and so the problem is that they are they getting this in young, it's it's insidious. And by the time these kids go to school, where they're taught by people with increasingly with the same mindset, academia is worse than the BBC. Yeah. Uh, we we have an educational framework for our children, which is entirely skewed, entirely biased. The British Library yesterday is saying that staff should donate um, to Black Lives Matter and read Marxist books and support Diane Abbott. £92 million of public money goes towards this nonsense, Mike. It is now everywhere. In every public institution, this mindset prevails. And I think we just have to keep pushing back. Uh, But I, I think viewers will start to emigrate away from the BBC in favour of free speech platforms like your own. I hope we see more in the future, give people the, the right to make a decision. And if they're able to vote with their wallets, I think the BBC will go down the pan.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Martin. We might have a surprise coming for him in a little while, a few months from now, but we shall see. Can't say too much at the moment. Martin Daubly, great man. Thank you very much indeed. A man after my own heart. The BBC will go down the pan because people are fed up to the back teeth of being lectured at, of being told what to think and of being uh, sort of the, the mouthpiece Uh, of some woke generation of bozos that nobody actually asked to speak up. I don't know where they get the idea that they want to be the voice of Britain. They couldn't be more further away than the voice of the people of this country. They are the voice of the privileged few, the voice of the public schoolboy, the voice uh, of the academic world, the voice of university common rooms, where you're cancelled if you think anything might be right wing. Absolutely unbelievable. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, let's talk now, though, uh, to Raymond Martin, a man we've spoken to before, Managing Director of the British Toilet Association, which is not as bad as it sounds, because we're going to talk about matters historic, of course, all the way back to 1858, because the City of London back in 1858 was in the grip of a massive heatwave, right? Uh, very similar presumably, to the one we had a couple of weeks ago. Um, but the difference then uh, was that the river... Which we can see from high above the tower of the Thames here, uh, overlooking the, the Tower of London. Um, 17 floors up, we can see the river, and it flows pretty well, and it doesn't stink. But it used to stink then, and he's going to tell us why. Raymond, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Good
5: afternoon, Mike. Thank you.
0: Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks for coming back to us again. Um, It's hard to imagine, I suppose, um, how awful the river was back then, because it relatively now seems to be, I mean, we're told, I mean, I'm not sure I believe it, we're told it's really clean now. And actually, if you did fall into it and you swallowed some of the water, it wouldn't be that bad for you.
5: Well, back in 1858, there was a completely different story, Mike. Uh, You had uh, cholera and typhus. Uh, the river itself was the main source of drinking water and bathing water but right. also the way of getting rid of your rubbish and your waste right so everything from all the houses and all the factories industrial waste uh, even the abattoirs or whatever was all dumped straight into the river oh God so
0: they'd have sort of b- bits of animals floating in it as well then
5: Bits of animals industrial waste chemicals uh, uh, pig fats mm. um, and then human waste and and uh, f- food that we had discarded right most houses back then would have put all their waste into um a bucket or a pail right and set it outside and then a night soil worker would have come along, put it into a cart, taken it straight down to one to either the river or one of the tributaries and just fired it in.
0: Oh, doesn't bear thinking about, does it? And I guess there was no water treatment in those days. So it just literally went in raw, right? And I include the sewage in that.
5: Absolutely, sewage everything and then you add on that heat and, and uh you know, uh, uh, what was happening then. I mean, there was literally no fish in the river at that time and very little wildlife and whatever. The river was just a stinking, mad, uh, bubbling cesspit. Yes,
0: and I Mm -hmm. suppose London then as well was a much smaller city than it is now and most people probably lived closer to the river than they do now, right?
5: Well, they did and worked on the river, you know, the boat people and and the lots of the trades all around the river. Mm. But as well as that, you had the Houses of Parliament. Yes. And Parliament had to be abandoned because the stink was that uh, atrocious that uh, they couldn't actually sit in Parliament and, right. and debate the thing of Goodness the day. me.
0: And was it less tidal then? Because, I mean, I actually live not far from, from the river. I mean, I'm a matter of yards. And the and the, the tide now is so fast running um, that at least, you know, twice a day, it drops and rises about 40 or 50 feet. And I'm talking about down sort of near Canary yeah. Wharf, that kind of area. So was it not as tidal? Because, in those, I mean, nowadays you can actually smell, sometimes where I am, you can smell the sea.
5: Absolutely. But you remember when your tide goes out, you then expose all the rotten waste and yes. all the on yeah, the, the seabed or the riverbed. Right. So it became worse as the tide went out. When the mm. tide came in, it tried to cover it a little bit. But, right. um, so actually, they I think the House of Parliament actually had to pour chlorine of lime onto the curtains lime, to st- and keep the, the stench away. Yeah, because apparently people were becoming ill. People were literally falling down in the street because it was so awful. Um. I think we lost 14,000 to cholera in um, around about 1849, Blimey. 1850, whatever. And then another 10,000 of right. uh, typhoid, whatever. So it was a major, major health threat. This, this thing was threatening the, the whole uh, structure of London and, and, and being in around that. So yeah. that's where Jet came in. The government had to literally get an engineer to come along and, and channel all this sewage and channel it all out to sea. Okay. And
0: was that the beginning of the kind of Victorian sewage pipes that still exist in some beaches yeah. around uh, around the coastline of Britain, but thankfully they don't actually still pump the raw sewage
5: out there? No. They, they, well, I think Basil Jet actually ended up with about 11,000, 11, 1,100 miles of tributary pipes going into the river, mm. and then 82 miles of pipe literally from London all the way out to the coast, right. which is about 82 miles. Uh, and that was a main sewer. And fortunately, what he, what he did was he had the foresight to say, do you know what? Um, here's what we need now. Add a bit more and then double that. Yeah. So uh, if he hadn't done that, we would be back almost in the situation, Mike, that we are that we were then.
0: Right. So so more or less, this was the beginning, I suppose, of, of proper plumbing in a way.
5: It was. I mean, uh, we'd started to see things like 1851, the great exhibition. We started to see toilets appearing and actually the first public toilets started appearing about
0: 1852.
5: Right. But the... Um, 1848, the Public Health Act came out, and then um, this all started. So then it was run about 1858, 1860. Bazalgette stepped in, mm-hmm. put the sewer in, and really we started to see a complete change in the health and well-being of the people right. of London, as well as the health and well-being of the of the uh, the buildings and and more commerce.
0: Okay, so the piping situation actually solved the problem because I was going to say I guess this went on for probably how many weeks or months.
5: It, it, um, it went on for about uh, 15 years, and actually probably you could add another 10 years onto that but, um, until all the final works were done. There were pumping stations at places like Chelsea and mm. Deptford and uh, Crossness and whatever that were put along the way to, to start pumping these things away. So that took about maybe 15 years or something to get all in, into place. But right. the, the big thing about colour, they actually thought colour was, was, was uh, transmitted by spray, a bit like coronavirus is today. But actually it was about the feces, it was mm. about the waste. Right. And so Basil Jet actually did this. He he eliminated the cholera and typhoid without knowing what he was actually doing. Mm. It, um, he was trying to take the smell away, but actually get rid of the disease as well. Right.
0: And so did they put everything into those pipes then, including all of the animal waste and all the rest of it?
5: Well, just about everything there. You know, um today we've seen things like maceration plants or whatever, where they take some of the stuff and chop it all up and remove it and and, and take it away to separate uh, waste stations or whatever. but um right, back in the eighteen fifty twos it was a matter of let's just get everything into this pipe or as much of it as we possibly can. right there was still a there was still a stink from the river because other people up and down the river, the poor and the poor, poor uh, and um, shop owners, whatever type of stuff, still dumped their dumped their waste the other way. away.
0: yeah, it's a shocking state of affairs. I mean, it makes you it makes you realize really how modern day kind of uh, industrialization, has really come along a, long, a very long way, hasn't it?
5: Well, well it absolutely is. I mean, we, we create waste that's just a part of our everyday life, part of our economy or whatever, and we it has to be treated properly, whether it's human waste, whether it's you know uh, waste from industrial areas, whatever sort of stuff, or other shops, whatever. It's right and proper, and you look at the, the work that the councils are doing all around the country, cleaning the streets, emptying the bins, getting... Uh, parks and cemeteries and clearing up the waste behind hmm. it's a massive massive task and, and uh, a thankless task in many cases we all kind of just expect it should be done well exactly fact... right well i mean we've Brilliant.
0: all been i suppose to to countries on holiday where things are not quite as good as they are here uh and, you, and you, it's, it's amazing how how quickly you realize that you'd rather it was the way it was here
5: oh absolutely and i mean with the, the pipe back then when basiljet built it in 1858 Cost about two and a half million pounds or 2.75 million, which would be kind of equivalent to half a billion pounds today. Yeah. That was just to build a pipe to get rid of the smell. Right. So you Shoulder. think of the money that goes into pumping stations and sanitation and street cleansing, vehicles, manpower whatever it's, it's, right. it's a colossal bill
0: it really is well raymond listen very educational thank you very much indeed raymond martin managing director of the british toilet association there with our homeschooling uh, segment talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio